with the book of Malachi. It is the last of the prophets, last of what we call the minor prophets. The Old Testament closes prophetically with Malachi. It closes historically with Nehemiah. They have come back from captivity. They have been in the land almost a hundred years at this point. After returning back from captivity, and after this prophecy, there are 400 what we call silent years. And next year, we're not going to finish the book of Malachi tonight. As I went through it, I just thought there's too much meat to have to go through and take big gulps of. So I thought, let's just slow down, take it in two, and uh, we'll finish it next week. And we'll discuss those 400 silent years that give us the Maccabean period, some of the great historical periods, because we want to ask certain questions. How did we get from a setting that we read about with the prophets in the Old Testament to this yearning and this waiting for the Messiah in the New Testament? Because we also read about the developments that have occurred in Judaism as soon as we open the New Testament. We read about scribes and Pharisees. We never read about any of those in the Old Testament. And they're beginning to be developed during the time of the writing of Malachi. In fact, by the time of the writing of Malachi, much has changed in Israel. The temple has been rebuilt. The walls of the city were completed by Nehemiah. But also there are synagogues that are now prevalent in Israel, which had not been prevalent before the captivity of 70 years in Babylon. You say, well, how did the synagogue come about? The synagogue came about when the Jews saw their temple destroyed And they themselves taken as captives in a foreign land. They had no temple to offer sacrifices. They could not worship God with the offering of lambs anymore or of the blood of goats and bullocks. Since they could not practice ceremonial law in a foreign land being captives, they could only read and comment upon the written law. They had no temple. So what did they do? They began to form what we call the Beit Knesset. In Hebrew, Beit House Knesset, gathering. The place or the house of the gathering, translated into uh, English, synagogue. The gathering place together. They paid more attention to the written law in Babylon. And they came out of Babylon with the Talmud. That is the commentary on the law of God, the first five books of Moses, by some of the rabbis. We'll develop that next week, but... Something for you to look forward to. Um, As I said, they have been back a hundred years now. And we read the burden, verse 1, of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, um, our announcer this morning introduced this as uh, being an Italian book, Malachi. But what most people do not realize is that this was not the name of a person. It was a title of a person. It means my messenger. It was given to many people. The messenger or the messenger of the Lord or my messenger. An angel could be called Malachi in the Old Testament. A person who's sent off to do an errand could be called Malachi. We don't know who the person was. Some think it was Ezra the scribe. Others have come up with fanciful interpretations that literally an angel or messenger of God wrote this. We don't know who it was, but he was a messenger of God. And really, we don't need to know much about his background. We don't really care about the messenger as much as the message. Um, When the mailman delivers mail to your house, are you overly concerned about his background? Now, wait, where did you go to school? I don't know if I can trust you. And did you uh, graduate with honors? And who is your mother? And what's your genealogy? You care about the message that he brings in forms of your letters. Your bills you could probably care less about, but the letters you do care about. The background is unimportant. The background of Malachi, though we know nothing about him, is unimportant, but the message is... And as we said, he corresponds with Nehemiah. He proclaimed his message during the time that Nehemiah had finished the walls of the city of Jerusalem. People had been back for a hundred years. They were so excited at first, and the excitement, as we remember from the previous minor prophets, lapsed into depression because of the oppression 
of Israel's enemies. Now they've come to a place where they're just lazy and lax. The people are lazy. The priests are lazy. And God is warning them through this gutsy, rebukative prophet named Malachi. And so it's called a burden in verse 1, or an oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The basic message of this book is that God's covenant requires faithfulness. God wants His people to be faithful. God wants His people basically to act like His people. I remember when I was a child, my father sat me down quite often and told me how that um, my behavior would reflect his reputation. And um, uh, my father was known in the community. And, you know, he just said, now, you know, you're our son. We want you to act like you're our son. What you do reflects on who we are. And he was right. Now, like father, like son, is the old saying. You and I reflect the covenant that we make with God when we say we are God's children. Immediately, people want to know, well, what do God's children act like? How do God's children work at the office or the factory? What kind of students are God's children? Not that we are to be perfect, certainly not. But there are certain characteristics that we are to reflect the faithfulness to the covenant God has called us to. Now, when we speak about the covenant that God made with Israel, you have to look at it in two basic divisions. There were several covenants or agreements, deals that God made. He made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. We call this type of a covenant an unconditional covenant. It is not based upon how Abraham acts or his obedience. It's, I have given you the land and your posterity, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, period, unconditional promise. When Moses came along, God gave to Israel a law, a way that they could relate to God. God promised them the land of Israel, the new land, the promised land, the one that flows with what? Milk and honey. That he promised to Abraham, only this time it was a conditional covenant. The covenant of the law. If you obey me, then I'll put your enemies out of the land. I'll bring rain and your crops will grow. You'll be blessed going in, coming out in your kneading troughs, your children, your animals, so forth. If you disobey me, you'll be cursed and you're going out, you're coming in, your kneading troughs and the, the whole spiel. And I'll kick you out of the land. He's saying, no, wait a minute. It seems to me to be contradictory. On one hand, God gives to Abraham and his descendants an unconditional covenant of the land of Israel, geographically, eschatologically. On the other hand, he gives to Moses a conditional covenant. If you obey me, you'll stay put. If you disobey me, I'm kicking you out. How can those things work? Easy. In the conditional covenant God gave to Moses, he said, Moses, if you disobey me, I'll kick you out. I'll spank you hard and you'll go into captivity into a foreign land, but I know how you will be. And I know that while you are captives, you'll cry out. You'll want to go free. You'll say, I'm sorry, God, please let us go back. We'll change, we promise. And when you do that, I'll bring you back into the land and I'll plant you. Now, Moses, it's going to happen twice. You'll come into the land. I'll kick you out because of disobedience. Though I promised Abraham that land for forever. (coughs) Pardon me. When you cry out, I'll bring you back into the land. God told them that they would go out and come into the land two times. He said the second time, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 tells us, when God brings them back from their captivity, the second time they will be in the land perpetually. The first time that God brought them back was the time that we're reading about now. Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra, Joshua the high priest brought the people back into the land to repopulate. But they got lazy. They got disobedient. God sent His only Son to the nation. They despised Him according to the parable that Jesus gave that Jesus sent them servants and they despised them and kicked them out of the vineyard. Finally, God sent His Son thinking that they would say, 
Well, he's the heir. We'll respect him. But they said, he's the heir. Let's kill him. And Jesus foresaw the second dispersion of the children of Israel out of their land. He wept over Jerusalem. He promised that the enemies would set a trench around them and take their children and kill them and take them captive again, which happened in 70 A.D. with the Roman army. For almost 2,000 years, they wandered without a land until May 14th of 1948, which was the second time the captives of Israel returned to their land and God promised that they would stay there. So there's a conditional covenant, but God knows that they will return, that they will repent, and God knows that He will bring them back and deal with them again. And no matter what they do, God promised to reign from Mount Zion. Now, Israel today is far from being a Christian nation, a godly nation. What is God's plan? There will be a seven-year time period that the angel Gabriel told Daniel God would use to deal with the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. The 70th week of Daniel, or we would ill-affectionately call it the tribulation period, Seven years of judgment in which God judges the earth, deals with Israel, saves a remnant, and defends the nation. And Jesus comes back and rules and reigns at the end of that from Israel. All part of a plan God made with Abraham back in Ur of the Chaldees, with Isaac, with Jacob, their posterity, though God gave an unconditional covenant. God in Malachi sort of reiterates the entire Old Testament and says that you must be faithful. You might be interested to know, and we'll get to it next week, that within this book is the prophecy of John the Baptist, the messenger who would precede Jesus Christ. Isaiah called him a voice crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. And so John the Baptist is announced. Malachi is the last prophet to close off the Old Testament. But he predicts another prophet, John the Baptist. And by the way, John the Baptist was a prophet. Jesus called him the greatest prophet of all. In fact, John the Baptist really ends the prophets of the Old Testament. Though there's 400 silent years, God really wasn't all that silent. We're going to see next week. Silent in terms of the prophets, but John the Baptist comes on the scene as the last greatest prophet of the Old Testament, ushering in really the new covenant. Okay. Backgrounds over. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, or God's messenger. I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Now, Malachi is going to follow an interesting Jewish pattern of communication using rhetorical questions. Do you remember Fiddler on the Roof? And uh, the song, Do you love me? Do I love you? I cook your food. I wash your clothes. What do you mean, do I love you? But do you love me? And they go back and forth with these questions. And in another part, he says, you know, on one hand, and he says something, but on the other hand, but on the other hand, and he keeps going to all, he only has two hands, but he goes through ten of them. And it's a typical Jewish form of writing that really was developed during the time after the captivity. So there's a series of questions God is asking using this style. The first one, he says, I have loved you, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Can you imagine asking God that question? God says, I love you. Oh, yeah? How? Every now and then I will find a person who says he or she is a Christian, but challenges the love of God. And that upsets me. I don't mind being honest with the Lord, but I do not like a person questioning something that God has so often revealed, not only in His Word, but in everyday life. Making a fist at God. What do you mean you love me? How have you loved us? God says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness, even though Edom has said, we, will be impo- we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. 
They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. One of the greatest tragedies is to love someone and yet that person whom you love, A, doesn't realize or accept your love, doesn't receive your love. Say, oh, I love you. No, you don't. It's so painful when you're trying to get across that message of love and acceptance for a person to spurn, to not receive or accept that love. Now, the theme of Scripture is God's love for man. The emphasis of Scripture is God's love for man and what God has done for man. That's the emphasis of it. Man's obedience and service is in response to God's love. Now, so often in the church, traditionally, the pulpit has given to people the opposite message. They say, the emphasis in the Bible is what you should do for God. That's hogwash. My response to God is my service to the Lord, but it's based upon what God has done for me. And so often, well, you ought to be doing this and you ought to be doing that. And so then it's just, you know, kind of blind obedience. It's um, uh, this perfunctory kind of uh, uh, military obedience. No, it's not. When you recognize the love of God and it's shed abroad in your hearts, the natural response is, I want to serve God with all of my heart because He loves me so much. And then it's not burdensome. It's not wearisome. It's done out of joy. It's not because you have to do it. It's because you want to do it. Now, God said, I've loved you, yet they didn't believe Him. Man, where have these guys been? God brought them back from captivity, and really that's one of His points here. I built you up again, not like Edom. They're destroyed. They thought they would be built up. I've loved you. You haven't loved us. The love of God is not only an emphasis in Scripture, it is so incomparable to any other kind of love that it's difficult to put it into words. The Greeks had several words for the word love. Agapeo was not one of them. It was used very rarely by some of the elite scholars. The Greeks would say phileo, friendship, brotherly love. Eros, erotic, sexual love. Storge, a family kind of love. But the New Testament writers incorporated the word agapeo, which generally speaks of God's love for man because it's on an entirely different plane. It's so vastly different. It's so different that it's been difficult for us to put it into words. Listen to the ancient hymns of the church speak of the love of God as being incomparable. The love of God is greater far than ink or pen could ever tell. It stretches to the highest stars. It reaches to the lowest hell. Now, who loves you like that? Does your mother love you like that? Well, she might love you, but not like that. Or that beautiful hymn of the church, Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God would drain the oceans dry nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. <laughs> Those guys understood the love of God is incomparable. Now God says, I've loved you. Well, yeah, prove it. Show us. What way have you loved us? God said, all right. Here it is. Now, before God does that, again, I find it amazing that they would question God's love. And as I've said, the greatest tragedy is to not receive love. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they did not receive him as the Messiah. How often, Jesus said, I wanted to gather you as a mother hand gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. The greatest act, how often I would have gathered you. The greatest tragedy, you were not willing. God's own people didn't recognize his love for them. They were blind to it. They were complaining. Every now and then, a blessed saint of God will write a praise report and put it in the agape box. It is so refreshing. Now, we pray 
for the needs of the saints. We do that on a weekly basis. We consider it a privilege to labor in prayer for you. We do. And on Tuesdays, the staff gathers and we pray for the prayer requests inside those boxes. And it's great. But it's very rarely that someone will write and say, my prayer has been answered. Praise the Lord like the lepers who return to give thanks. And when we find one, it's like, gold! Somebody's thanking the Lord. It's so easy to look inward and to complain. But how rare to find someone who recognizes God loves me. Okay. God says, What's not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. (laughs) I've got to give you some background on this one. God is reminding them of their origins. He's answering their question. Okay, I'll tell you how I've loved you. Let's go all the way back to Jacob and Esau. Now you remember Rebekah was unable to have children when she married Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old. And when he found out his wife couldn't have kids, man, he started praying. He pleaded to the Lord on her behalf. And so she became pregnant. God answered his prayer. But there were two children and she didn't know it. There was just this jostling in her womb. And she said, honey, if everything's okay, then how come I have this jostling? I'm perturbed in my womb. And so she inquired of the Lord and God said, well, the problem is there's two nations in your womb. Well, that that could cause trouble. (laughs) Two nations are in thy womb, and two people shall be separated from your body. One will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so the babies came out. The oldest one, Esau. They called him Esau because he was hairy and red. And the word Esau means hairy and red. (laughs) They looked at him. He was hairy. They said, well, let's call him Harry. So little Harry was born. He was the firstborn. After Harry came out, they noticed that the second child was grabbing onto the heel of Harry. And so they said, hey, let's call him heel catcher. Jacob, Yaakov, one who supplants or grabs after the heel. Jacob, as it turns out, was a sensitive, mild-mannered kind of a man. Esau was this rough, tough, hairy huntsman. He despised the things of God. Jacob loved the things of God. He was God conscious. He wanted to please God. Esau, though he had the birthright of the firstborn, could care less. And he sold his birthright for some clam chowder or for a a pot of stew. Okay, I'm improvising a little bit. He was so hungry after a day of hunting. He said, oh, give me some of that great grub that you cook, Jacob. So we'll tell you what, since he was a conniver, a supplanter, he said, you know, you've got something I want. That's your birthright. Oh, who cares about the birthright? I don't care. Have it. Just give me some food. So he sold his birthright. He despised the things of God. Isaac blesses Jacob and gives him, the younger, the privilege of the older, the right of the firstborn. That really bums Esau out when he finds out what Jacob was up to. So he comes in for the blessing and he says, Okay, Father, I'm ready for the blessing. I've cooked you some. I've got you some game out of the uh, forest. I said, Hey, man, I just blessed your brother. He came in smelling like you. And he wore hair on his arms to act like you. And I, I thought that was you. I've, I've given him the blessing. Well, come on. He was faking it. Give me the blessing. I can't. A blessing is a blessing. It's gone. Now, God promised to Esau that he would enjoy the fatness of the land, and God promised him a territory. And God would bless him, but not with the same blessing that he gave to Jacob, giving him the right of the firstborn. As it turns out, though Jacob was a conniver, God changes his name to Israel. He becomes one who fights with the Lord. God creates the nation of Israel through his womb, or through uh, his progeny. And as the lineage goes out, One despises the Lord, one loves the Lord. So God says, after 1,500 years, He didn't say that at the beginning, but after 1,500 years of history, all right. Now in response to their seeking me or not seeking me, one I've loved and the other I have hated. Now you've got to take this, rather than being as absolute, look at it comparatively. 
It's the same sense that Jesus said when he said, unless you hate your mother and father, you cannot be my disciple. That doesn't mean that a Christian is to say, mom and dad, I hate your guts. It means that your allegiance and love for Jesus should be such, so intense, that your relationship with your parents would seem as hatred in comparison to the love and devotion you have for your Lord. In other words, that is to take preeminent relationship over everything else. So in that same sense, he says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So you're Jacob, you're Israel, I've loved you. I've laid waste his mountains, his heritage, the jackals of wilderness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, but I will throw down, uh, you know, even though they say we'll be built up, God says I'll throw them down. What God was saying is, look, you're back in the land. You have a rebuilt temple, you have a rebuilt city, and now you're planted back in the land. These guys, Edom, went into captivity at the same time you did. But though they want to rebuild, they cannot. I'll never let them. If you go down to the area of Edom today, you'll see what it looks like after the captivity. It's called Petra or Selah. I was down there a few months ago, down in Rasanakab, Jordan. And it's just, it's desolate. God promised that He would make it desolate so that when people traveling through the land, they would say, what is the purpose of this burning or this desolation? God said, it's because they, you know, they uh, went against my people and they disobeyed the hand of the Lord. And so I was back there a few months ago in Jordan and I looked out the window and I said, Look how desolate it is. And a man was with me and said, You just fulfilled prophecy. And he showed me in the scripture, they will say, What meaneth this burning? Or look how desolate this place is. And it's still desolate. They've never been able to really rebuild that area uh, after that point. So God says, Look, you have been rebuilt. Now, a son honors his father. And a servant is master. If then I am the father... Where is my honor? If I am the master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? See, they're asking these questions. What do you mean? I don't agree with you. You offer defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we defiled you? <laughs> you know, after a while you think, just be quiet. Quit asking God questions. Just let Him talk. The table of the Lord is contemptible, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Now God says, you haven't honored me. He says, now look at a child. A child honors his father. Of course, we're talking Old Testament here. Back in those days, a child was to honor and to respect his parents, was to obey his parents. There was such a high value placed on a child obeying his parents, reverencing and honor his parents, that if a child cursed father or mother, he was put to death. He wasn't spanked. He was put to death if he cursed and defiled that relationship. It is estimated that there are 8 million attempts annually in this country. Eight million attempts of children in assaulting their parents. There would be eight million deaths if that were the nation of Israel. Wouldn't tolerate it. Whoever curses father and mother will be put to death. I did a funeral about five years ago or so for the Overhand family on the west side. A teenager having difficulty with his parents, yelling at his father, his father not able to control his child, never really resolving the conflict. He came in one night to the master bedroom and took a gun that his father, I think his father had, and um, shot his parents, both of them, in the head. While they were still alive, they didn't die from it. He bludgeoned them to death with a sledgehammer. Buried them in the backyard. And I did the funeral. It was a tough funeral to do. So when we're talking here, we're talking Old Testament. Look at a son honors his father that was just known back then. It was taken for granted. And a servant his master. Now a servant meaning a slave that was completely owned by the master back in those days. 
had to honor that relationship. And it would be the same as an employee-employer relationship. If you work for somebody, you honor that relationship. So God says, if I am the father, and if I am, uh, where is my honor? If I am the master, where is my reverence? Now, I'm your father, I'm your Lord, I'm your master of the nation, yet you're not honoring me. Now, he tells the priests here, you despise my name. They say, what do you mean we despise your name? Here's the problem. The temple's built. The city's built. They're worshiping in the temple. But it's a ritual. It's not in the heart. It's, It's become wearisome, we'll read here in a few verses. It's boring to them. It is perfunctory to them. It's just, same old thing. Their heart wasn't in it. God says, I'll tell you what you're doing. You're offering defiled food on my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? God says in verse 8, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Okay, picture for a moment. There's a wealthy Judean rancher who lives up in the hills of Judea and he's got blue ribbon cattle and sheep. And he's raising them for money. And he's a very successful rancher. And then one day he finds out that his prized cattle have a disease. Or they were in an accident, they're lame. He goes, oh no, my business. Okay, tell you what, all is not lost. Quick, put him in the pickup truck. Well, that's modernizing it. Take them down to the temple and offer them as a sacrifice. They're no good anymore. They're lame. Now, the law required that when you offer a sacrifice to God, it was to be without spot and blemish because every sacrifice looked forward to Jesus Christ. It will be without defect. If it has a leg broken, don't offer it. I don't want it. If it's diseased, keep it for yourself. Offer me the best, the firstlings of your flock. They didn't do it. They were offering the diseased. And the priests were accepting it. They thought, oh, who cares? I mean, it's just for God. Now, I find people have the same attitude today. It's like, well, who cares? It's just for God. God understands. Instead of giving God the best of your life, the best of your day, the best of your energy, I find that many people have that attitude toward their material possessions. Hey, let's give that old beat-up piano to the church. We've used it. We've thrashed it. It's no good for us anymore. We'll give it to God. Hey, those old clothes that are torn and don't fit anymore, let's just give them to the Lord's work. Hey, people will actually like those clothes. I'm glad that you give them, but the idea is that we've used it in ourselves the very best, and whatever is left over, we'll give it to the Lord. I've told you that story before of the guy who had two calves. He said, honey, one of them belongs to the Lord, and one of them belongs to us. They made the vow right then and there. But in the course of time, His wife said, well, which calf belongs to the Lord? He said, well, I don't know. We'll worry about that later. But one of them belongs to God. We never forget that. In the course of time, one of the little calves got a disease and was about to die. And the man rushed into the kitchen and said, honey, you wouldn't believe it. It's a tragedy. The Lord's calf just died. In other words, he was waiting to see which one was the worst. He would give that to the Lord. That's the idea that God is indicting them for here. He said, it's an evil. And so he says, offer it then to your governor. (laughs) Would you take that lame animal and give it to pay your taxes to the governor? Now, as you know, here at Calvary Chapel, we never make an issue out of finances. We don't have Pledge Sunday. And we don't have a big to-do about even an offering. I mean, we have an offering in the term of, of agape boxes. There's no little flashing lights on them as you come in to attract attention. We let you know where they are. They say, we say it's between you and God, and you do it. And we don't call up the biggest donors and say, oh, we want to thank you for that donation and forget about it. We're not into that. But when the subject comes up, and it does come up in this book, we do address it. There are some people who minimize the giving of tithes and offerings to the Lord. They say, oh, man, I especially love Calvary Chapel. Love it because they don't take an offering. So I don't have to give anything. It's great. I just hang out, you know, and it's just between me and God. And, hey, I give a dollar every now and then. But God says, would you give that to your governor? Now, would you pay, would you pay taxes like that? Well, I've got to pay taxes. I mean, it's the government. Hey, this is the Lord. The God of heaven and earth. Okay, you're right. 
He owns a tenth of everything. No, he doesn't. He owns it all. Every last penny of it belongs to him. The only requirement in the Old Testament is that they gave a tenth. But there were actually three tenths, three tithes. And they staggered them on years. There were at least two tithes a year. And some years, you gave 30% of everything you owned to the Lord. If people would give to God's work as much as they pay in taxes, there would never be a missionary lacking in the world today for funds. Now, I've always made it a priority with my wife. We, from the beginning, said, Honey, as soon as we get paid, wherever we're at, whatever job we have, 10% of it belongs to the Lord's work. Immediately, no questions asked. Well, what if we can't afford it? Hey, we can't afford not to. That belongs to Him. We don't touch it. That's the minimum requirement. Above and beyond that, we set aside what we call um, offerings, love offerings for missionaries that we support in the field or we have anything extra for somebody who has a need. But the 10% always goes to God's work and we've always given it to our local church. Above and beyond that, as I said, we want to have extra ties for those who do the work of the Lord so that we can see God's gospel go out. But God says, the same attitude that you have in worshiping me, would you do that to the government? Would you give that lame sacrifice? Try it sometime. Try to pay taxes that way. <laughs> Let me know when the audit comes. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably? Says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. God's purpose in choosing the nation of Israel was that they be a light for the world to attract Gentiles, to attract the nations. And actually, this is a prophetic verse because one day God's name will be great among the Gentiles. It is today. Most of the church around the world is a Gentile constituency. And in the end times during the millennium, though God reigns geographically from Mount Zion, all the nations of the earth will flow to it. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. You know, if your heart isn't in something, it's weary to you. Take a person who, let's say he loves tinkering with his cars on weekends. And he just, he's into it. It's like, I can't wait. It's Saturday. I want to get my hands into grease. I love putting the fuel pump in and, and uh, rebuilding the carburation and tuning it up. Just love doing it. And let's say he says, you know, I'm into this so much. I like doing it so much. I'm going to go into business. What happens eventually? That which was a hobby and a love and a passion turns into a duty. You think, oh, I've got to tune up another car. It becomes wearisome to him. His heart isn't in it anymore. <laughs> Tomorrow, as you drive to work, look through the window of the cars that pass you or are parallel to you, look at the looks on their faces. See how many are raring to go. Got smiles on their face and go, whistle while you work. How many are out there doing that? Most of them go to work and it's just a bore and a drag. It's weary. And it's horrible to have to live life like that. To where it's just a grind instead of a a joy in doing it is unto the Lord. Not that, hey, listen, every minute of your day, there are some jobs that, that just, and I've had my share of them, where it's like, Lord, I've got to turn this job over to you. Otherwise, there's no purpose in it. Unless I'm here to spread your kingdom, I see no value in it. I mean, it is boring. But you can redeem it. It can be used for your glory. And uh, so he says, you know, you say it's a weariness. Now, church can be like that. To many people, church is just a bore. And when it is, I admonish them to stay home. 
Don't drag your spouse to church. I hate going to church. Fine, don't go. Don't drag them. Don't force them. It's become a... And, and, and what happens when church becomes... When people are wary of Bible study, that's when you've got to think of the programs. Okay, we've got to come up with something. We've got to get people into church Sunday nights. You know, it's always a low night. We've got to come up with a program. More entertainment. More concerts. That always brings in crowds. Let's figure out... No, forget it. If you have to do that to bring people in, you have to do that to keep them. Better to just go through the Word and then people go, hey, I'm not into that. It's weary. But the people who are into it, those that have hungry hearts will come. And that's the people you want anyway. Forget about the empty seats. Concentrate on the ones that are filled. Those that are interested in God's Word. But there were those... We said it's a weariness, man. I have to go to temple. I've got to go to church again. I think back to the Puritans. They would sit on log benches and have two to three hour church services. Sermons were about two hours long. I've gone to third world countries where I cannot keep up with the hunger of the people. It's like it takes me completely off guard. It's usually where you begin early in the morning and you preach five, six, seven messages on into the night. And it's like, man, I'm, I'm waxed at that point. I'm toast. And they go, keep going. And then they'll even fall to your room. <laughs> and they'll ask you questions. What a hunger. The church services in India that we've attended are usually four hours in length. Usually. There's no air condition. There's no chairs. There's a dirt floor oftentimes. And you know... It's like throwing water on a sponge. Solomon said, To the hungry in heart, every bitter thing is sweet. They have hungry hearts. And it's like, you know, you just share. And they'll just go, Ooh, I love it. Changed my life. Anything. And it's just, it's wonderful to do that. And you often find that in persecuted countries. John MacArthur said, I'm praying that God will send persecution to our nation. I pray for that daily. Because it seems to separate the chaff from the wheat. Those that are chaff quickly fall away. Look what happens during the Gulf War. Churches swell. Ten times. God's coming back. The world's coming to an end. I better find out about God. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But be cursed, but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and makes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among all the nations. Now, I love what I do. It's never a weariness to me. I just wanted to kind of share that with you tonight and reaffirm that to you tonight, that... There are, though there are four services on Sunday, I love it. I, it's not weary. Now, I'll admit, I agree with what Dwight L. Moody said. He said, actually, one time he came home from several services during the day and he was absolutely pooped, man. He wanted to fall asleep and his family begged him not to take the evening service. He said, listen, I often get weary in the work, but I never get weary of the work. And oftentimes I get weary in the work. Now, there are times when I come home because I get home Sunday, eat lunch, and I begin immediately for Sunday night service. And there are times where I've sat at my desk and I've just fallen right asleep in my chair. But I never get tired of it. It is always a thrill and a joy for me to be able to go into the Word because the Word of God is alive and powerful. It changes. And as long as there are people who want to come out and listen, we'll keep going. Now, chapter 2. God speaks to the priesthood, the corrupt priests that uh, were really leading the people astray. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. I will rebuke your descendants, spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you. The people and the priests, as I said, had gotten lazy. 
The priest thought, oh, heck, you know, who cares? You brought a lame sacrifice. Yeah, God will accept it. No big deal. They became lazy and they started questioning the love of God. They became lax personally and they became lax as a nation. One of the problems when God gives us so much is that we get, we take it for granted, we get lazy. We really do. There's no excuse, in my opinion, for a lazy minister. I can tolerate a lot of things and a lot of mistakes and lots of different attitudes, really, of people that are pastors and that are on staff as we grow together. But one thing I do not tolerate is a lazy pastor. When you're being paid a wage to minister to the people, though it may not be a hefty one, you're making your livelihood to minister to people, then that's what we're called to do, to minister to people. You can become weary. Now, this is not only for, I'm not trying to pick on staff, but anyone who wants to be called into the ministry. Ministry is not nine to five, punch the clock, go home. Yes, you need to be with your family. Yes, you should minister to them. In fact, sometimes you've got to say no so you can minister to them. But it's a 24-hour responsibility. It's not like, well, it's over now. I put on another hat. I can be somebody different. And the priests were getting that way. And so God brings up the whole idea of Levi in verse 4, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me, so he feared me, and he was reverent before my name. (coughs) The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many from iniquity. Now he's going back to Levi. And I was going to get actually into the history of Levi, but we don't have enough time. You might want to chase down Genesis chapter 49, where God calls Levi as Jacob prophesies to his 12 sons. But the priesthood was given to Levi so that they could be reps. They were God's reps. A priest was a go-between. He was a representative of God to the people. He represented the character of God. He gave out the word of God. He tried to turn people from their wickedness, arbitrate often between their uh, disagreements. And he was a representative of the people to God. The high priest would wear the breastplate with the names of the 12 tribes. He would go before the Lord bearing the names of the tribes, the people, before the Lord. So he represented the people to God and God to the people. And God says, that's what Levi did. And that's not what you're doing. You've strayed from him. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should keep knowledge. And people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts, but you have departed from the way you have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but you have shown partiality in the law. Now look at verse 7. The lips of a priest should keep knowledge. People should seek the law from his mouth. That also goes for a pastor. The principal calling of a pastor, a pulpit pastor, is to study the Word of God above everything else, above administration, above counseling, above visitation, above hospital visitation, above fundraisers. It's to study the Word of God that he might teach. Acts chapter 6, there was a problem. The widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. They complained to the elders. The elders did a good thing. They said, we're not going to leave the word of God and serve tables. Choose seven men full of the Holy Spirit, good report and wisdom among yourselves. We'll let them do it. And they found them and they let them do it. A friend of mine once called me in Colorado and he said, you know, I started this church and I'm pastoring it, but the last two weeks I haven't been in the pulpit. I haven't had time to prepare messages. I've counseled all week long the people that have knocked on my door and called on the phone and come to the church and I've done all the counseling because they keep saying, oh, we won't listen to anybody but you. You've got to be the one to counsel us. So I haven't had time to prepare my messages. I said, what have you done? He said, I've had my assistant pastor in the pulpit. I said, now, can't you see what's going to happen? They're going to be listening to him 
receiving from him, getting fed from him, and they're going to be then asking him to counsel pretty soon. And then it'll be, you know, a circular thing. What you ought to do if you're going to counsel all the time and do the administration all the time and all the visitation all the time is let him be the pastor and you be his assistant. Back him. Give him the freedom to study the Word. Pray for the people. Cook a meal in the Word of God. And you do all the other stuff and support him and back him. But the principal ministry of a pastor is to be a teacher. And I refer to you, I refer you to Ephesians chapter 4, where God calls some to be evangelists, apostles, pastors, and teachers, which could be literally translated pastors who are teachers. The word and in Greek is the word kai. It's not the typical word in Greek, day, a connective and. It's kai, which means pastors, that is teacher, a word that refers to the same individual. It's the Greenville Sharp rule in the Greek language. That teacher refers to the pastor. They're one in the same office. He's called to teach the Word of God. People should seek the law from his mouth. Now, verse 10 says, have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Now, don't, don't misunderstand. We're not teaching the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, in the same sense that you hear it talked about today, or, hey, we're all brothers, man. Whether you're a Christian or you're a Buddhist or you're, you're a New Ager, we're all brothers. And God is the eternal whoever, man or woman, it's all one father or mother. But we're all one. No, we're not. We're not one. We're as separate as day and night. We are brothers in the sense that we have one creator, and that's the idea. That's the qualifier here. God is the father of every human being in the sense that he's the creator of every human being. But Adam sinned and broke that relationship of the fatherhood and sonship. Adam was called the son of God. But Adam fell and caused the fall of man through original sin. And after that point... People were not called sons of God. They were called servants of God. Moses, a servant of God. David, a servant of God. You can't become a son of God until you're born again. Who as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the authority to become sons of God to those who believe in his name. So you have to be born into the kingdom of God now to become a son. Has not God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of our fathers Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the holy institution which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, the man who does this being awake and aware and who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, why or for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion, your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? having a remnant of the Spirit, and why one? He seeks godly offspring, therefore take heed to your spirit. Let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? in that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? Three indictments, we'll only be able to touch on them in the next nine minutes and we'll pick it up next time. Three things. Number one, they married women of foreign gods. They were unequally yoked. They married non-believers. Secondly, they divorced their spouses very nonchalantly, very loosely. They didn't even care about it. It's like, hey, everybody does this divorce. And number three, they wearied God with their words. They kept challenging God. 
Well, look around. Look at the crime. Where's the God of justice? God said, you know, I'm sick of hearing that. Sick when people keep challenging me. Where's God, man? Where's God in Ethiopia? Where were you in Ethiopia? How involved were you in getting food and supply and aiding the misery of those people? Don't blame God. You've got hands and feet and you're upon this earth that he gave you as a steward. God said, I'm wary of that. Now back to the first one. He said, Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He had married the daughter of a foreign god. Now this happened many times in Israel's history, by the way. Remember when Balaam was summoned by Balak of Moab to curse the children of Israel? What did he say? He said, I can't do it. These people are blessed of God. I can't bless or curse whom God has blessed. That made Balak really angry. So he took him to another mountain. He said, well, maybe from this vantage point, you'll look at him and you'll curse him. No, they, they're blessed. <laughs> I can't do it. Took him to another mountain. He said, okay, now, maybe from this angle, bl- uh, curse them. Man, listen, God has his hand on these people. I cannot curse them. It won't even work. I'll tell you what you can do, though. You don't need to call down God's curse. No, all you have to do is send your beautiful young Moabitess, idolatrous, worshiping women into their camp. Those men will catch a glimpse of those babes. And don't worry. Eventually, they'll get together with them and the women can cause them to fall into idolatry. And when they turn away from God, God Himself will curse them. It happened. It worked. Later on, the same thing happened when Ahab the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, married a woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of Eth Baal, a Sidonian priest. And married, this king of Israel married into an idolatrous pagan priesthood. And it started bringing the nation more and more into idolatry because they married foreign women. Now, what's the New Testament principle? 2 Corinthians 6 tells us, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I think it's the revised version that says, don't be mismated with an unbeliever. Now, there's many applications. Principally, of course, is that of a marriage relationship. Christians don't marry as a Christian now if you're in the point place of dating and you're looking for Mr. Right or Miss Right. You think, oh, I found him. I found her. Don't be unequally yoked What does that mean? In the ancient times, they would plow their fields with oxen. And they wouldn't have one oxen. They'd have, uh, you know, you need two horsepower, two ox power. Take two oxen, take a wooden yoke, which was a device that linked the two oxen together, and they would pull the plow. They were yoked together or bound together with this device of wood called a yoke. You'd always make sure that you wanted to get oxen that had basically the same temperament. They were basically the same size. So that when you started plowing, one wouldn't go in one direction, the other pull in another direction. They'd fight against each other. They wouldn't be able to plow the field. In the long haul, it would be a poor match. When God says, don't be mismated or unequally yoked, God said that because He loves you. He knows how difficult your life can become if you marry someone who's going in an opposite direction that you feel God is taking you in. One of my biggest concerns before I was married was that the Lord would provide someone who would be yoked with me in in the same arena. Though there were other girls that I dated, I wanted to find someone with the same philosophy of ministry in the Scripture who had the same desire toward ministry that I had. And I frankly was willing to stay single if I needed to the rest of my life until God would provide that one. Because I knew, I saw people that in the long run, they could be going two opposite directions. They'd be trying to plow two different fields. They have different interests. God says, you've married outside of the Hebrew faith. Of course, then there's a thing called missionary dating. Well, you know, he's really cute and he's sensitive. And uh, there's not many believers as good as this guy is. In fact, I don't find many Christian men asking me out. Huh. So I'll just marry that unbeliever. 
show them all. You're not going to hurt anybody but yourself. Oh, but I'll be, I'll missionary date them. Don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll cook meals for them and I'll put a track, you know, right in the sandwich and he'll go to eat it in the lunchbox and, uh, uh, and he'll find that track and he'll read it. I'll figure out ways to lead him to Christ after we're married. Hey, make sure that you do that if you're going to do that before you're married. Because he's at his greatest influential point with you before he's married anyway than after he's married. Hey, he'll forget about it after you're married. Now, don't get any ideas here, but Nehemiah, who was during the same period, had the same concern. In fact, he found it in Jerusalem. There was a pagan guy who was living in one of the apartments, in the, the, the rooms in the temple. And uh, he found out, what's going on? There, there's a pagan and there's an idolater living inside the temple, a priest. Come to find out, the priest in Jerusalem at the temple's son married this pagan guy's daughter, so he worked out a deal and gave him an apartment in the temple. Nehemiah found out about it, took all of the guy's belongings and just threw him out, tossed him out in the courtyard, booted him out. And then he found that many of the priests and the people of Israel had married foreign wives. You know what Nehemiah did? You know, the Scripture is honest about its heroes. It says he took them and he yelled at them. And it says that he struck some of them and even pulled their hair. In rebuke, he was so angry. How could you do this? We've been in captivity 70 years. You're bringing reproach upon God because of this. He was hardcore, man. (laughs) Secondly, God says in verse 14, God has been witness between you and the wife of your youth whom you have dealt with treacherously. Some of the greatest scholars believe this is a reference to divorce. I agree, since the context is that. Verse 16 would uh, commend that interpretation. With whom you've dealt with treacherously, she is your companion and the wife of your covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? Marriage was God's invention. Divorce was man's invention. Now, there's much to be said on this to avoid confusion and condemnation. This is a very tender subject, and I think I'll wait till next week to really finish out the chapter and deal with it as it should be dealt with because there are several truths we need to bring into this so that we're not unfair. We need to think about Deuteronomy 24 and Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Those are all important facets of this area. But the people were loose in their marriages. They were having the escape route. They were entering into their marriage kind of thinking, look, we're married, but if things don't work out, I can always divorce. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. People are doing it. They came back from the captivity. They married Jewish wives when they were young, but they saw these gorgeous pagan women. And these guys just, you know, couldn't think about anything else. And they were divorcing their wives to marry some of the pagan women. It was destroying the land, and it was actually destroying them. Henry Ford was asked, when he was, he had a successful marriage, a long marriage, the same woman. And he was at a party in his honor and they said, Mr. Ford, tell us, what is the success? Or what is the secret of a successful marriage? He said, it's the same secret to having a, success, a successful automobile. Stick with one model. <laughs> now that always is impossible in some cases. Either by death, or by infidelity, sexual immorality, and a person is left as a victim, and next week we'll kind of discuss that to get the balance in in view of when God says, I hate divorce, what that really means. But marriage was God's invention. God said it's a covenant. She's to be a companion. When God first made Adam and Eve, or actually He made Adam, And he put him in a garden and he gave him the best job anybody would ever want. He had it all, man. He got to name animals in paradise. Okay, Adam, you're going to work. Great. God, what's my job? 
well, you just kind of sit around this garden and I'll bring these animals to you and you think up clever names for them. Great. And all these animals would come to me and think, um, zebra. <laughs> Though he had the best job, a tax-free environment, a smog-free environment, lush surroundings, you know, the kind of setting like Maui or Kauai. Something that people would save all of their lives to, to get. He got it <coughs> when he was, you know, first made. He had it all. He had all these animals, but even though people say dog is man's best friend, it wasn't. It didn't work. He wasn't satisfied. He had all these animals. There was no suitable helper found for Adam, the Scripture says. And so God said, it's not good that man should be alone. Or in Hebrew, not good, not good that man should be alone. God says, I will make a helper that is comparable to him. Now, some women say, hey, wait, wait, I protest that. What do you mean a helper? You know, it sounds like she's just to wash his clothes and cook his food and clean up. But just a, well, who are you? I'm his helper. <laughs> but the word designates companionship does. It's the same word used of God. God is a very present helper or help in times of trouble. And it can be translated rescuer. Not good, not good that man should be alone. He needs to be, he needs help. <laughs> he needs to be rescued from his aloneness. I heard somebody say that God first made man then looked at him and said, I think I can do better than that. So he made a woman. The word can be translated one who brings another to complete fulfillment or makes him blossom like a rose. God recognized man was incomplete though he had everything. And so he made a woman, a creature that could come alongside of him, next to him as a companion, make him blossom, rescue him from his aloneness. That beautiful saying, woman was not taken from man's head to be above him or from man's feet to be walked on by him, but she was taken from his side his rib, to be protected by him, to be close to his heart all of their days. That was God's intention in marriage. For this reason, a man will leave father and mother, be joined into his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then he discussed the ramifications of that, uh, what would happen um, if they did. And we'll discuss that next time as we finish the Old Testament. of that. Uh, what would happen um, if they did. And we'll discuss that next time as we finish the Old Testament.